Hi everybody and welcome to the NDSC podcast, a place to share ideas for future and new management doctoral students. I am your host Jose and I have prepared for you a couple of episodes we recorded at the 2022 Academy of Management annual meeting live from Seattle. In this series of episodes you'll hear from faculty and students. They all provide some great advice that I think will be super helpful for your PhD journey. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed recording them. Thanks for hearing us and welcome again. My next guest is Jason Colquitt, professor at Notre Dame and academic director of the Mendoza PhD program in management and organizations. Recording this episode and doing this interview with him was extremely fun, and I think you will all enjoy all the advice and stories he shared with us. So I think the first, and it's kind of like the icebreaker I said, is just kind of like getting to know you on a more personal level uh, outside of academia, because I guess all the time is... Jason Colquitt, trust, justice, and a lot of that, right? Or your role as um, the program coordinator at different schools. But maybe what's something that you could share with us that uh, is more about you personally, something you like? I heard you, you talked about basketball, right? <laughs> or your family or your hobbies. I don't know, yeah. something you would like to share with the students. So uh, my wife and I have three kids. Um, I have a son who's a senior at University of Georgia. Nice. Uh, son is a sophomore at University of Florida, two places that I was previously uh, in my career. Uh, and then in South Bend, we have a daughter who's going into her sophomore year uh, of high school. So, you know, three kids uh, keeps my wife and I busy. I, I would say our life has been full of basketball, uh, full of frisbee, lots of movies, uh, lots of Wii Sports Resort, if you know what that game is. Uh, and all three of them were in marching bands, so I played the trumpet uh, when I was younger. And so we're, we're band parents. We, mm. we load the trailer full of band equipment and go to these random towns uh, on Saturdays in the fall. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, would you, would you, do you think one of your kids would go into academia, maybe, or no? Well, they're all super smart. Um, mm -hmm. They're all smarter than me. Um, some of them are good writers. I would say none of them like writing enough <laughs> to do it. Like it's not just about being good at it. Yeah. You really have to want to do it. Yeah. You have to want to do it on a Tuesday morning, mm -hmm. sometimes on a Saturday morning, um, sometimes on an airplane, sometimes in a coffee shop. Um, so certainly they're all smart enough to do it. Um, one has a finance or MIS background, so that's in a business school. Um, my student, my son at Florida is gonna be a veterinarian. So they've got research mindsets. They all are good at science. They all did clubs of a you know science Olympiad, learning how to test and gather data kind of nature. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're writers, and if you don't if you don't really love the writing, it's not not that great of a gig. Mm -hmm. And um, I think now that you touch on, on family, and maybe this is not going to be for all our RPG students. At least it's, it will be helpful for me. Uh, since I have a family and a PhD student, how how challenging <clears throat> has it been to kind of like balance your life, your personal life, your family life, and also your your life as an academic? 
Yeah, it, it helps to have sleep schedules that are different from one another. Mm -hmm. So uh, right now, I would say I usually get up 6 or 6.30 in the morning. Um, my daughter gets up about, you know, 8.30 or 9. And sometimes my wife will sleep till 9.30 or 10. Mm -hmm. That's great. Right? <laughs> I love that because I get a certain amount of time uh, in the morning to write. And you have to write when it's quiet. Um, but the other thing about work-family balance kind of things when you're a busy person is it's just, it's not always about the raw number of minutes. It's about, you know, how good are the minutes that you're getting. <laughs> um, and I think even when I was busier, younger, in my career, earlier in my career, I think I was always pretty good about the time being quality time, not being multitasking, second screening, I'm distracted. Yeah. Um, kind of time uh, and then there's also just you know you need to be balanced over the course of a year there's sometimes where you know you're gone a lot uh, you're late late at the office um, long hours at the library a lot and then the, then that paper gets submitted you get that R&R &R back you've got a little bit of time and that's when like okay let's, let's take a trip mm -hmm. you know let's go to you know this town for the weekend Let's let's go do this um, to take advantage of that little bit of extra freedom that you have for five or six days until something else comes back <laughs> onto on your desk. Yeah, that's good. So now going more into the, the questions we had uh, prepared for everybody that we're interviewing, I think the first one is what brought you to this career? When you decided, hey, I want to do a PhD, I want to become a professor, I want to do research. How was that kind of like journey for you? Yeah, so I think my story is kind of unique in that my mom and dad owned their own business. Okay. They ran the business out of the home. Mm. Um, I have an older brother and an older sister. And so our entire, you know, life was watching mom and dad talk about the business. It was a janitorial service. At one point, they had a restaurant as well. Um, mom was in charge of uh, the firing and dad was in charge of the hiring. And so they would, <laughs> they would fight about that all the time. Uh, they would always be saying, "If we you know, like we're six or seven good people away from having things under control," mm. and they never found those six or seven good people in the you know decades that that we watched them do it. And so I think partly because we grew up in that environment, my dad, my my brother, my older brother, got his PhD in industrial organizational psychology, and then went into industry. My sister opened her own business, and so we're all either doing what they did or studying why they did what mm -hmm. they did. Um, and so my path was gonna, was gonna be what Alan's path was. I'm gonna get a PhD in IO psychology. I'm gonna go to uh, work for a consulting firm. I work for a big company. Um, my brother said, you, you need to get research experience for graduate school applications. And so I was fortunate enough to work with a, a professor at Indiana University uh, named Tim Baldwin. Mm -hmm. And my intention was, let me get some, some research experience. It'll help me apply to IO psych programs. Uh, we worked together for about a year, and it was time to send him my applications. And he's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm writing your letter this weekend. You've done a good job uh, for me. Uh, we'll apply to all these IO places. You'll do what your brother does. But I just have one question. You've worked with me for a long time now. What's wrong with my life? Um, and it was like a, one of those glass breaking moments because you know he's sitting across from me by the way mm -hmm. in, in khaki shorts and a, and a polo shirt 
Um, he had, you know, gotten in that day at 9.30 because he dropped his son off for school. He was going to leave that day at 3.30 because he was going to coach his son's soccer game. And I'm like, wow, there's nothing wrong with your life. You're happy every single day. You have a ton of freedom and a ton of, a ton of autonomy. And so in that moment, I pivoted. Instead of applying to, you know, some OB programs, but mostly IOSAC, I applied all OB. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of decided in that moment, I'm going to be a professor. Mm. You know, um, I'm going to I'm going to have a different kind of life um, than the people, at least that I'd been exposed to uh, growing up. Oh, that's pretty cool. So, and maybe touching on that, I think that 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 leans nice to this one. So, what what right now is the favorite thing or the most fulfilling thing of your work or your career? So, if I just think about the life of a professor. Mm -hmm. So let's leave what I, what I study out of it for a, a moment. It's, it's just the best job on earth um, because one of our most famous theories in organizational behavior is job characteristics theory. Mm. What are the aspects of jobs that make them intrinsically motivating and intrinsically fulfilling? And so there's five of those things. Um, one of them is variety. Our job has a ton of variety. If we just talk about research, I study trust, I study justice, I study the meaning of work, I study personality, I study whatever I want. Uh, and it's, it's always a variety of things. Obviously on the teaching side, you teach a lot of different classes, a lot of different people as well. Um, so variety is one. Second one is identity. Do you do a whole identifiable piece of work? Can you point to something and say, I did that? Well, I can point to a textbook that uh, I helped write. I can point to research articles that I helped finish. Like I, in our job, you start stuff and you finish stuff. A lot of times in organizational life, especially if it's a large scale project, you work on one phase of it mm. and you hand it off to somebody else and you're never kind of there when it's done. Uh, the moment that we get a conditional accept and then the moment when something comes out in print, it's done. And now we can look back and say, this is, this is all the things, all the twists and turns that project took. Third one is a variety of identity. Third one is significance. I, my research is about making bosses better bosses, um, making them more fair as bosses, making them more trustworthy as bosses. I think there's a lot of meaning in that. Um, in the occasions where I do executive ed or where I do consulting in an organizational setting, when people have heard the term procedural justice or organizational justice, whether my work or somebody else in the literature, that, that means a lot. Um, and those kinds of issues only become more and more important. There's never going to be a moment when, no, no matter what's happening in the, in the workplace, where trust will stop mattering yeah. or justice will stop mattering. And the fourth one is autonomy. We don't have a boss. In the traditional sense of organizational life, we don't have a boss. We write where we want to write. We write when we want to write outside of the you know, Tuesday or Thursday that we're in a classroom. Uh, if I wake up one day and I don't want to write about justice anymore, I won't. I'll write about something else and I'll, I'll pick mm -hmm. um, what it is I write about. Um, and then the last one is feedback. If we don't do a good job in the classroom, we know. <laughs> <laughs> Our students tell us. Mm -hmm. um, if we don't do solid, rigorous research, we know the reviewers tell us. <laughs> uh, and so we're always getting pretty good feedback on both sides of the job 
um, and that that's great too. It's nice to know how well you're doing uh, or how well you're not doing, as the case may sometimes be. I love it. I think that that's gonna be awesome because uh, people that will hear this podcast, they're they're even learning a little bit of theory in it, and it was right on point. Um, so on the other side of the coin. Uh, this is what's more fulfilling, but what would be kind of like something that is very challenging or like like something that you know it's it's a challenge? Yeah, so we're we're here at the Academy Management Conference. Last night I had dinner with my dissertation advisor, uh, John Hollenbeck. Um, I got my PhD at Michigan State in 1999. So John is in his 60s um, and still completely active in research, still working with PhD students still has his fastball. Um, mm. I think the challenge in a career, starting before John's stage, um, my stage, even earlier than my stage, is when you, when you get past that you know, second promotion. So you get promoted from assistant to associate with tenure. You're promoted from associate to full. Well, there's, no, there's not really any promotions after that. Mm -hmm. You can get a chair. You can get different kinds of chairs. But... It's not like an organizational life where there, if you work for a consulting firm, there's probably a, 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 a career ladder that has a lot of rungs on it. Mm. Our, our career only really has two rungs. Mm. And so the challenge is, how do you keep doing it? Um, when that last promotion is behind you, um, you're making the money that you kind of wanted to make in this field, which is for many of us is more than we kind of ever thought we would make doing what we do. Um, how do you keep going? What has helped me in my career Um, but has created its own challenges is moving. Mm. Uh, I was at Florida for 12 years. Those were 12 great years. Moved to Georgia. I was at Georgia for nine years. Those were nine great years. Moved to Notre Dame. I always found moving uh, a refreshing reset because you go into a brand new place. You have to prove yourself all over again. Um, you have to prove to your colleagues that you're a good colleague. Um, prove to those PhD students that you are a good scholar. Uh, prove to your administration and other departments that you're a good colleague. Uh, and so that kind of need to start over about every 10 years um, has helped me. Now it's been a challenge too because you know it's it's nice to you know be in year nine at a place and feel like you have a reputation yes. and people trust you uh, and you know. To go to a new place is its own challenge, but it's a reinvigorating one uh, as well. Is there, a, in those three moves you've had, is there a little bit of like strategy that you consider? Is there something, because I, I think you've been at like three amazing institutions, like Florida, Georgia, Notre Dame. Um, is it more like, hey, I wanna move, and is you the one, are you the one that starts the process, or is more yeah. maybe, the opportunity presents itself and oh, it's a good opportunity to take or a little bit of both. Yeah, so um, we can learn more theory here. So <laughs> in organizational behavior, there's a theory called the unfolding model of turnover, which is that there's some kind of shock that gets you thinking about things. Mm. Um, and so that was the case at Florida. We had two other people that left uh, and that was a you know, natural kind of time for me to say, am I going to be here forever? Um, Or is, you know, is there a, a different place for me? Um, and so that was a more purposeful, I'm going to stop and look around. Okay. Um, 
and in the case of, of Georgia, what, it, what, what Georgia had was a bunch of super talented junior faculty that just needed one more senior faculty member to do the administrative stuff, to you know, be the PhD coordinator, to serve on the, on the college committees, because you don't want assistant professors doing that stuff. Um, I knew that all of those folks would grow up to kind of be stars. Mm. And in fact, like virtually every one of them is, became or is now an associate editor of a journal. Um, so I had a, a, a part to play that was kind of a right time, mm. uh, right place. Also, we're from Indiana, and so it's not a coincidence that each successive move got my wife <laughs> and I closer yeah. uh, to our home state. Uh, but then the Notre Dame opportunity really kind of came out of nowhere um, because they were starting a PhD program. Um, they never had one in the 100 years of the Mendoza College of Business. I knew that as someone who grew up in the state uh, applied to Notre Dame for undergrad, had friends that went to Notre Dame. I always kind of had one eye on it and kind of always thought, well, we'll never have a PhD program. You know, student, the teaching mission is too important. Um, there's all, you know, all kinds of other reasons why they might do it. Uh, and so them saying, we're going to start one. We need someone to help run it. Um, and me thinking to myself, that's a pretty cool opportunity. Yeah. Um, our daughter always loved Indiana. My wife, my wife loves both Indiana and Michigan, which are practically on the Michigan border. And mm -hmm. so, it was just, and our, our, you know, our, our, our older boys were off to school; they weren't going to be um, around anyway. Um, so it just it made sense, um, uh, and it's 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 been a good, fun uh, thing to do, certainly for the for the past couple of years. Nice. What's been the best advice you, re you received so far? Maybe as a PhD student or even now as a professor? So when I was a first year PhD student, there was this four volume set released called the Handbook of Industrial and Organizational Psychology. And everybody bought it. It was just like, you had to have it on your shelf uh, <laughs> because it was gold. Of course, this is before journals and articles are widely accessible on the, inter on the internet. So everybody had this, it was burgundy, It was green, it was yellow, and it was brown. Everyone had the same four volumes on their, on, their, on their desk, and you just, you read it from start to finish. You got a lot of it in PhD seminars as well. Um, there was one chapter in one of those volumes by John Campbell, uh, an IO psychologist from Minnesota. And it had one, one phrase that I instantly loved, which is, there's no substitute for knowing a lot. There's no substitute for knowing a lot. And that, those words have been in my head ever since. I've said that to students, uh, PhD students over the years, because it's so true. Right? It's, it's hard to be a scholar. Uh, it's hard to be an expert in a field. You just have to put the time in. You have to do the reading. You have to do the reflecting. You have to do the work on your own research you can't cut corners in any way and I think when scholars get in trouble whether they're PhD students or assistant professors under tenure pressure it's when you try to find a way to get to that end goal without putting the time in hmm. um, that you don't read 80 articles on a topic you read 10 and you cross your fingers that there's nothing in the other 70 they're going to trip out the contribution you're trying to make Um, so, no substitute for knowing a lot. It's true in content. If I'm if I'm an expert on justice, there can't be anything written on justice that I don't know about. Um, if I'm an expert on trust, same deal. Methodologically, 
you can't stop knowing like so I, I my research methods training was in essentially in 1995 and 1996 if I'd stopped there <laughs> <laughs> never learned any new software package never learned any new technique you have to know a lot to analyze data uh, and you have to keep coming to meetings like this and looking for opportunities to, to find new ways to know a lot um, you have to work with co-authors that know more than you do uh, about the things that you're doing so if there's three of you between the three of you you know an awful lot um, about that project so simple quote uh, simple sentence, but it's had a lot of importance to me over the years. Nice, I like it. Um, last kind of like official question, and then you have a little kind of like fun dynamic that is we have a, a bunch of cards here, and it's like random. We we survey some of our past uh, new doctoral student consortium participants, and we just ask them, hey, what do you want to learn or know about? But this is the last one from there, and then we'll we'll pick one from from this bunch. Um, is there a resource that you think has been very helpful for you and that you would like to share with students and maybe this is a conference that you think is really good uh, I don't know a workshop or other thing write a book something that you think it's it's helpful has been helpful for you and might be super helpful for PhD students well so this is a podcast and often on podcasts people plug stuff and so mm -hmm. I'm gonna plug awesome. a resource that I was part of uh, so when I, when I was the editor of Academy Management Journal from 2010 to 2013 we did a uh, six-part editorial series uh, on publishing in AMJ. Uh, it kicked off volume 54 and number three uh, in 2011. Uh, and the first one was about topic choice. Uh, the next one was about research design. The next one was about writing an opening. The next one was about grounding hypotheses. Uh, the one after that, writing method and results. And the one after that, writing a discussion. Uh, and for a period of time, a lot of those articles found their way into doctoral syllabi. I feel like enough time has passed that that's, they're kind of now falling out of those syllabi. Uh, but I think they remain just as relevant and just as helpful today. Uh, and so I think that's a helpful resource. If you're, if you're sitting down to plan a study, because a couple of them are more about the planning stage, topic choice and research design, if you're sitting down to write a paper, then just go over those. From 2011 into 2012, um, go back over those because they're written by people that are evaluating papers. Uh, and so when we write about grounding hypotheses or writing an opening, you're, you're reading what people are saying about it who are going to evaluate papers just like yours. Um, and there's no, it's always saw sharpening to go back over. Uh, those kinds of things. It's really, as a writer, it's really helpful to be introspective and think a lot about your writing process. Um, and so, going back over some of those articles, each time that you sit down to write, uh, I think is a great idea. Yeah, I, 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 I've read a couple of those. I haven't read all of them, but I know a couple of them. Yeah, they're, they're very, very helpful. So, thanks for sharing that. Okay, so this is, this is a random, like there's about like 30-something questions here. So, this is totally random. Uh, so let's see what comes out. All right, so I see a lot of, uh, I've got a lot of cards to choose from. Yeah, there's like 30 something. Should I draw from the middle? Should I draw from the side? These are tough decisions. Right. I'm gonna draw, I'm gonna draw from the middle. Let's see how, let's uh, let's say. Share a bit of your job market experience. So 
this is gonna this is gonna make people very envious. Um, when the University of Florida was kind of building up its group, they had a move that they used. I don't know if they were the first ones that did it, um, but they posted unusually early, brought you out unusually early, uh, and then gave you an unusually high offer. <laughs> um, and so my cohort, the, my office mate at Michigan State the year before, I've been Jeff Lapine. Jeff and I worked together in the, in the team effectiveness lab. He was hired at Florida the year before I was in the market. And that was the deal. He had a job by mid-September, which at that time, and still even today, is very, very, very unusual. Mm -hmm. um, and so they had another job uh, my year. And so I kind of knew this might happen. Um, and so they bring me out in early September. Uh, by this point, schools had realized they were doing it. And so a couple other schools were going a little bit earlier than normal. And so unlike Jeff, who gave one talk, got one offer, and was off the market, um, I actually gave at least two talks. Uh, I gave a talk at Florida and a talk at Cornell and the uh, ILR school. And I thought both of them went very well. Um, now, my wife and I had lived in East Lansing, Michigan for five years. She was ready for something a little bit different than snow. Um, and so... You know, when it came down to Cornell versus Florida, my strong sense was that she really preferred that we go to Florida, um, uh, and we did. Uh, and as I said, those were those were those were 12, 12 great years. So it was a, it was all done by mid-September. Uh, there would be these schools that would contact me in October and November. We want to bring you out, and like I, I've been off the market for eight weeks. Um, <laughs> So, and we continued to do that at Florida. We used to have a, a we used to, at lunch, like, we, here's what we need to do. We need to bring the dean to academy. And we bring a realtor, like, with a slideshow to academy. And we do your academy really? interview. Then you meet the dean. The realtor tells you about the time, the, about the, the town. And we give you the offer. We never, ever did anything like that. But um, <laughs> That was the strategy, like, level up. Yeah, so the nice thing for me is I got to spend a lot more time on my dissertation, a lot more time uh, moving projects forward. I, the, the 2001 Justice meta-analysis that I published, I started that after I was done with the job market in my fifth year. We just started coding articles the rest of that year. Um, and so I look at people that, you know, that have eight or 12 talks. It, it goes into December, sometimes January. And it, you know, it's it's really tough. They lose a lot of time at what is a pretty important part of your career. Now, what they gain that I didn't get is I didn't really get this chance to build my network. Mm. Right? I met faculty from two schools, mm. um, and so when I went to my first academy as a as a professor, as an assistant professor, I didn't know as many people as if I had done the full job market. Right, and I hadn't really been to that many schools. Okay. Right, there's these people that that give seven, eight, or nine job talks. Not only do they broaden their network from the from the get go, but they really have a sense of these other schools. Mm. And it took and took until I was kind of old enough and mature enough, experienced enough to start getting brown bag invitations, to kind of be like, hey, what do, what do other schools look like, besides Indiana, besides Michigan State, besides Florida, so. Pretty easy job market experience, um, uh, and I was I was very fortunate for that. 
Perfect. Well, I think well, I'm, I'm going to throw one extra really quick since we are at AOM conference. Uh, is there any advice uh, you would like to give maybe in this context of, of, of the conference to PhD students that it's their first time here yeah. or like me, right? I, I, I'm a third year student, but I've been online with, due to the pandemic. So this is my actual first yeah. year here. So any conference, more particular AOM advice you would say for students? Yeah, I think for students, um, obviously networking is important. I think students spend too exclusive of a focus on networking with faculty, mm. on thinking, okay, I, it's my job to meet you know, full professors, associate professors, people that work in my literature. That is part of networking. But another part of networking is meeting other PhD students, people that are your year. Um, or here, you know, above you or below you. Uh, one of my first conferences, I had a poster session. We Academy doesn't do poster sessions anymore. They're 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 sometimes kind of boring if no one comes to your poster. <laughs> um, my next door neighbor in the in the line of posters was Quinetta Robertson. And so we were the, we came out the same year. We were both PhD students. She at Maryland, me at Michigan State. Me networking with her. And meeting her has been huge for my career. Uh, we worked together on the first paper I ever published in Academy Management Review. She is now the, the uh, pre has been the president of Academy Management. She's a former associate editor of Journal of Applied Psychology, current de deputy editor of Academy Management Journal, chair professor at Michigan State. But when we met, we were just two students that didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> uh, and so, meet fellow students. Um, because they're your friend, they're going to be your friends, they're going to be your collaborators, but one day they're going to be handling your paper, they're going to be hiring a PhD student of yours, uh, they're going to be instrumental and important to the academy and to your career in ways you can't anticipate. Um, so don't just, don't just use the networking uh, effort on faculty, use it on students as well. Perfect. Um, well, now that I have you here and your program coordinator maybe something that students that are considering going into a PhD uh, what should they consider right what what should they be thinking on um, when when thinking on okay which are my options or where should I apply yeah I think the, the 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 most important decision to me is what kind of a place do you want to end up in your career as faculty because your PhD program should look like that place. Um, schools mostly hire from schools that look like them in terms of peers, right? So if you want to wind up at Dartmouth for your first job, you need to get a PhD at a school that looks a lot like Dartmouth because then Dartmouth knows they can hire you and you won't have culture shock. You won't be like, wow, I never expected this place to be like this. Um, in my case, when I was that age, I wanted to work at a flagship state university. I wanted to live in a college town. I wanted college sports I could take my family to. I wanted the rhythms of college life. Uh, when I got to Florida, it felt just like East Lansing, Michigan. Hotter, <laughs> less snow, but it, it felt just the same. Um, and so it seems strange to think about what job you want when applying for a PhD program because that's one step back. Um, but the hiring patterns of schools are very clear, right? There's certain schools that hire from one another. And so you, there is a certain 
you know, the, the, the statistical term for this would be path dependence. There's a path dependence to this life where as soon as I choose this place and not that place, I probably have narrowed my job options in particular ways. So, so think about that. Obviously, think about the faculty. Um, not just are they talented and productive, um, but do they work with students? Um, because some faculty really like to work with their friends from grad school. Uh-huh but don't so much like to work with the PhD student down the hall. Um, and as a PhD student, that doesn't do you any good. You need someone that wants to work with you. This is an apprenticeship, and someone's got to teach you the skills and teach you the craft. And so look at faculty CVs. You can see you know, what, whose dissertations have they chaired on that CV. Have they also worked with those students? Are those students showing up under the kind of co-author uh, portions of a CV. One mistake that I think students make, and this is just my opinion, people will, will disagree with this, I think they overemphasize content fit a little bit. Mm. Content fit is nice, um, don't get me wrong, but what's more critical is someone that really knows how to do this craft and is really good at teaching it. All right, when I was at Michigan State, I did team decision-making research with John Hollenbeck, I did training motivation research with Ray Nelly, both really good scholars, not my cup of tea content-wise. And so when it came time to my dissertation, my dissertation was in neither of those areas. And I've never really worked in those areas since. But I learned the craft. Um, and so if you're looking at a program that seems to make sense, with faculty that seem like they do really good work, but you don't love the content, don't eliminate that school, mm. uh, especially because the, the, the labor market realities is that lead author work becomes more and more important over time. Yes. Even if you go to some place where they don't do the content you like, in year two, you're going to do something lead author. Well, you'll pick the content then. You can pull faculty into the content areas uh, that you like at that point if you take the time to really become expert and learn that literature without that kind of faculty help. Uh, and faculty guidance. I think that's actually super great advice because I think what I've heard the most was, hey, you're like match research interest. And I think, yeah, absolutely. It's way more important what you said, like professors, their faculty that really want to teach you the craft. And you don't don't necessarily know what you're interested in just because you haven't, there's a lot you haven't been exposed to. Totally. And so those first, you know, two semesters, three semesters of content seminars, when you read stuff you never read before, and never knew about before. Um, the number of times where someone's statement of purpose and someone's dissertation proposal <laughs> were pretty similar is very low. Yeah. It's not unheard, it doesn't, it doesn't never happen, but it doesn't often happen either. Um, and so you're also narrowing down things that four years from now, maybe you're not interested in anymore either. Yeah. yeah. Well, I could be talking with you all day, Jason, but I wanna be mindful of your time and, and our podcast time so thank you very much I really appreciate everything you shared and um, it was great seeing you here at AUM well thank you Jose this was a fun conversation that's all we have for you today thanks for joining me and please stay in the loop for our next episode I really hope everything we share here contributes to a happy and better PG journey for you <laughs>